Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Alex Perry, founder and CEO of Practically Speaking. Alex spent two decades as a speech-language pathologist working with patients to regain their ability to speak after illness or injury. She then launched her business, Practically Speaking, to help professionals improve their communication skills and connect with their audience. She hosts the Practically Speaking podcast and is the author of Minivan Mogul, a crash course in confidence for women. In this conversation, we get into the biggest issues she sees in speech patterns, how words frame our thoughts and actions, how there's no such thing as a wrong way to communicate, and what it means to communicate authentically. I'm a big believer in the concept that words matter and have seen how different language and speech patterns impact other people and the response you get from those people. And so I was really excited to dive into this today with Alex, and she definitely delivers. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Alex Perry. And we are live with Alex Perry. Alex, good afternoon. I'm excited to dive into this conversation today, and I will start off admitting that I'm a little nervous because... I feel like this conversation is like having a deep conversation with a psychologist. Like you just, I'm, you're always a little worried that they're reading into your past and judging your childhood. And I feel like I'm going to be very cautious about the language I use and what I say as we get into this topic. Tell me all your things, right? (laughs) Yeah. So my first question, we'll just cut right to it so that I don't embarrass myself by doing any of these things. But what are your biggest pet peeves when it comes to people's speech patterns? Jargon in in authenticity, not being authentic to who you really are when you speak. And jargon being just business jargon? Corporate kind of speak. Jargon? Corporate speak. Synergies. Synergy. Yeah. Uh, what's the current phrase that's going on right now because it's 2020? Well, in these uncertain times. <laughs> Would you please point out to me exactly when we ever had certain times? Synergy. Yep. Oh gosh, pick your poison people. I'm going to circle back with you, which I, which I catch myself saying from time to time, like, dang it. I don't circle back. I call you back. I revisit the conversation. I do something else, but circle back. What is that? What is that? It, It is funny when you actually think about the words that you're using to convey. I saw a video the other day about the language that salespeople are using in the pandemic. And I just, it made me cringe and laugh and just kind of want to cry at the same time. Cause I am guilty of saying some of those things myself. And I was like, Oh, I have to stop this. This is just, it's too stereotypical. We just, you fall into those patterns. You do. So how did you get into speech pathology in the first place? So that's a great question. I landed in speech pathology, not of my own accord. I was going to college and I was for sure going to be a nurse, 110%. I thought this is, this is my jam. I'm going to do it. I got into a nursing program here that was a really good nursing program. I landed in a biology class that I was ill-prepared for. It lasted, it was supposed to last two hours. I left after an hour and a half going, I'm traumatized. I was not ready for this. I don't want, I don't know what I'm doing. And I went home. I lived with my sister off of campus and I looked at her. I was like, well, I thought I was going to be a nurse and now I don't know what to do. And she was, and still is very savvy and super smart. And she's like, well, we'll look up the 10 top jobs and then you're going to pick one. And so we were looking at what the 10 top jobs were in 1996. 
and speech pathologist was on there. And she's like, ooh, that's the one. She's like, I had a speech pathologist when I was a kid and I couldn't say my R's. And so you have this personality, you'd be great for that. And I thought, well, I can at least try. So I went to a 101 class and I dug it. I thought it was pretty cool. And then I kept going and kept going. And next thing you know, I have a master's degree. What was it that drew you to nursing originally? Taking care of people. I had guessed that was what you were going to say, because that does seem to align pretty well with speech pathology. Like it's not too far off to jump from nursing to that, even though you didn't make that connect. That wasn't how you made the connection. It seems like a fairly natural step. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're not dissimilar. You're doing a lot of caretaking of people. You're heavily involved in their lives. And especially because so much of my career as a speech language pathologist was done in hospitals, hospitals and nursing homes were the bulk of my experience. It, yeah, I mean, all of the things, what can I do to take care of you? What can I do to help you doing video swallow studies, doing, all kinds of crazy things working with people. What what is a video swallow study? Video swallow study. So what people don't often recognize about speech language pathologists that is that we are the people in the hospital. If you have a problem with eating or swallowing, we come in, we do the evaluation. Uh, If you don't pass, you know, if you don't pass initial screenings, you actually go have a radiological exam, radiological, I can't even say the word, I speak in typo. So I'm the speech pathologist, speech coach who will fully admit all of her errors. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so you go to radiology, you have an exam, we look, we actually do a moving x-ray that shows how you swallow and whether or not things are going into your airway, whether or not your mouth is moving correctly, whether you're getting reflux and backup, all of those things. So most people don't know that about speech pathologists, but we are the folks that if for whatever reason, we will change your diet, we will tell the physicians whether or not you can or cannot eat, we will make recommendations on feeding tubes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had no idea that that was a a speech pathologist thing. I, I would have thought that that was some other medical discipline. Nope. Both of of my work dealt with both. So speech language pathologists, so speech language and feeding and swallowing. They don't, I mean, that would be a lot of letters behind a name. I don't know how you would work that in, but. Interesting. And so then you do that for the better part of two decades. What then makes you jump from the service medical side into the for-profit corporate badlands? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Great question. So I was working on traumatic brain injury unit here in Indianapolis, and I have known for a long time that I had a bent toward coaching people. I was the person on the team that always had a student, was always supervising. I would be the person on the team that people would come to and say, how do I handle this? How do I talk about this? Help me walk through this process. So always in that leadership, but not leadership role. So not technically a leader, but doing doing the leadership things and obsessed with all the leaders, watching them, paying attention, what works, what doesn't work who's really good at it, who's not really good at it. And so I knew I had that bent. So I started searching, thinking about, well, what could I do? I have, I have a master's degree. So you don't just throw that out the window and say, I'm going to go leave my really great job and go do a thing. But I, but I knew corporate speech language pathology was a thing and it's predominantly accent reduction. Uh, I did a Google search, honestly. So this came up because of a Google search. I was Googling corporate speech language pathology and I found a firm in Carmel, Indiana. So I'm you know, in Noblesville, we're not far apart. And this person was doing executive presence, public speaking and storytelling skills. And she, was, she taught this, she was a speech language pathologist and she happened to be hiring. And I thought, I'm gonna throw my hat into the ring for this. I was always the the speaker junkie. People know me as the front row fan. I was the kid in class that would go sit in the front row. And I'm the front row person in the conferences. I'm that really annoying person that gets super close to you and is just like watching and, and judging or assessing. Assessing is a better word. <laughs> like what made this great? What didn't make this great? And, oh, man, wouldn't I love to be up there too? And so 
it made sense. It made great sense. Want to pause for a second. You said most of the corporate work that's being done is accent reduction. Yes. Can you speak to why that's the most popular work that's being done? Because that's that seems like an interesting one. Well, for speech language pathologists, because we technically know all of the acts, the aspects of how speech is produced. So I can tell you how each individual sound, each consonant, each vowel is formed. When you look at big companies like Google or Yahoo, or I'm, I'm guessing even something like a Salesforce here probably has um, somewhere in their coaching repertoire of people, someone who works on accent reduction, because especially here in the United States, we have a lot of foreign nationals and the issue is we don't understand. And this person is hard to understand on the phone, especially I get a lot. I got a lot of that in my role with in Carmel, but they're, they're hard to understand on the phone. We need to neutralize their language. We need to make them sound better in English. Oh, okay. So it's, it's mainly people with accents who are trying to communicate more clearly. Yes. Okay. Because I was thinking, when you said it initially, I was thinking somebody whose native language was English, who just wanted to reduce whatever their geographic accent was so that they came across sounding more neutral or, or got rid of a bias from whatever part of the country they came from. I'm sure that that's a thing, but it's much more... I haven't, I have a foreign accent and I need to be understood in English. Okay. Got it. I'm, I'm glad I asked that. I was, I was yeah, that's a good question. So then getting into, I, I want to just get into speech for a little while. Cause I think speech is really interesting. My wife is going to roll her eyes when she listens to this and hears it. But I, I say all the time, words matter and she and I will miscommunicate sometimes. And I always say, you know, words matter. The, the words that you choose and, and how you communicate them. What are the biggest problems that you see in your corporate work when it comes to speech and speech patterns? Speech and speech patterns. So, okay. And you're separating these out from communication. So I'm going to save my communication answer and give you my speech answer. So we, can, we can go wherever you want. You can, you can answer this however you think is most appropriate. Well, so blanket statement, the biggest communication problem we have is not listening. So before you can even possibly understand or misunderstand someone's speech or language, the first issue that has to be addressed was, was I really listening? Was I really even listening to what I said? So back to if I get going too fast or I'm not paying attention to even myself, I'm going to miscommunicate. I'm going to have a typo or I'm going to say something that I didn't really intend. So that's a big blanket thing that I would say. I like that. So you say you're not even not listening to yourself. So you just, you open your mouth, let it rip. And yeah. Um, let me give you an example. So I was on a call just before this and a woman, she's a leadership coach and she's talking about something that's going on at work. And she says, well, I can't, I can't coach that type of leader. And I'm thinking you're a leadership coach. Why can't you coach that type of leader. And she's like, well, I've never been that type of leader. So I couldn't possibly coach that type of leader. Can't. That's an interesting word. And so I kept digging, digging with her. I was like, I was like, all right, you know, you're talking to a person who is a speech language pathologist that coaches CEOs. I've never been a CEO. I'm a CEO in my own business, but I've not been a CEO, not been a vice president. I haven't been a president. I haven't been any of those things, but I have an area of expertise that's beneficial. So of course I can coach someone that, that, can't doesn't didn't process and so the more that we picked it apart turns out she didn't want to coach them on the particular area that they were going to be working on which was financial acumen financial words business understanding so anyway you hear that from folks all the time they will say things like that and not even realize like can't or want those are different things it's like when I look through my Instagram ads and it's like want or need, like you got to figure out which one that is. It yeah. can be tough to decipher sometimes. Yeah. Have to do, get to do. There you go. Have to do, want to do. A lot of times uh, folks will say uh, disparaging things about themselves and not even realize that they're doing it. 
uh, again, I was talking with a group of women and one of the first things out of it, she's young, probably, you know, early twenties career professional. And she's like, well, I'm just a mess. God, how many people have we heard say that? Or how many of us have said it ourselves? I'm uh, guilty. So everything I will call out is I'm guilty of, I make, make no mistake. You are a mess. You might have made a mess. And actually, mess isn't even accurate. She was describing the fact that she was taking care of her father who was critically ill. They might know you're a human who's dealing with a particularly hard set of circumstances that that's not messy. That's human. So those types of speech mistakes, I see all the time. And they get to me. So let me play devil's advocate on those for, for a little bit. Because I could see somebody rolling their eyes and saying, Oh, you're being too hard. You know what I mean? I, you know, my life's hard right now, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> you know, you can pick apart every word that somebody says, and then they're like, just shut the F up. Like, you know what I mean? I don't have time for that, blah, 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 blah. And you can just like see that negative reaction. Sure. What's your response to that? My response to that is, ooh, what is it about me that you don't like about you? And... When you program yourself, your language is programming your behavior. So when I talk disparagingly about myself, when I, and I mean, again, I, self-deprecating humor, it's a thing. But when I, when I speak in a way that I don't mean, that creates confusion for another person and I'm program, not programming myself for success. I am not making myself clear. I'm putting it in your head. If I came up, if I had started this interview with you and I said, oh, I'm such a mess, then what's the first thing you're going to think about me? You're a mess. That I'm, that I'm a mess. Yeah. And that you're going to have to somehow take care of me or that I am not going to show up well for your podcast, which is really important to you. Mm. Yeah. So that's what I say to that. That's interesting. I have a really close friend of mine who says all the time, you know, oh, my life's a disaster. My life's a disaster. And his life is anything but a disaster. He's living a fantastic life right now. But, you know, he he just gets caught up in a situation and that's sort of his de default joke of what's going on at that time. And I, I noticed after he and I became really close and spent a lot of time together, I could see that it was holding him back from acknowledging some of the happy things in his life. And he has since stopped saying that quite as often. Uh, and you can see that it actually, I think it coincides with some self-work that he's done on what he actually wants in his life. And now he realizes that he actually wants some of these things. And so it's interesting to see that the speech pattern has then changed. Yeah. When you communicate with confidence, you feel more confident. And when you are communicating well, then you will feel more confident. They're, they're intertwined. You can't separate the two. So when I hear folks saying things that they don't mean, right, his life wasn't a disaster and he knew that. He had other things that were buried that. So say what you mean. Right now, this aspect of my life is not going well. I need to do my checking account. I need to be better at my follow-up with folks. I need to have a tough conversation with my boss. Those things aren't disasters. A disaster is a hurricane that wipes out half of a city what's going on in your life is not likely to be a disaster unless it really is. So if it really is, use that word, but otherwise steer clear of that word. Yeah. We like to go all the way to the most catastrophic words we can use, yes. which, is, which is similar to swearing, right? Like we, when a situation is bad, we want to use the worst word we can think of. And so that comes into play. How do you think about, let me ask this a different way. Cause it's a question I've had for a while. I've heard that if you say that you don't want to do something, that your brain frames the thing. It doesn't hear don't or not. It just hears the thing that you want to be. So if you say, I don't want to overeat, what you're focused on is overeating. Is there any truth to that? I don't have any scientific evidence for that. What I do know is that when you look at especially mindset and mindset training and performance mindset, especially in athletes, that there is a very real correlation between self-talk and visu visualization that leads to success. So 
I would say that there is anecdotal evidence that would support that if your brain is only function, you know, focusing on the the verb, the thing that the thing that is the action. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's like the golf analogy when you're standing on the tee and you're looking at a fairway and there's water off to the side and you say, I don't want to hit it in the water. You're sort of just, you're taking your whole attention and your body and lining it up with the water. And so I could see that happening in your mind too, when you're talking about some of these things. And I've had this conversation with some friends too, who said, you know, talking about the things they want in their life. And they say, oh, I I really don't want to be that. And I've actually stopped a few people and said, well, what do you want to be? And I find that in my own life to be much more empowering. Yes. Yes. So your brain will fill in the gap. We're pattern seeking creatures. It's going to fill in the gap. So why would you program yourself for anything but success with your language, with your actions, all of that? Your golf analogy made me think of the analogy I give people, which is if I tell myself over and over again, I put on a pair of heels and I say, I'm not going to trip. I'm not going to trip. I'm not going to trip. Then I trip. Your brain's like, okay, (laughs) tripping, tripping, tripping. So now I don't, you taught me something. I might, I might have to go research that that the brain itself doesn't register the don't. And I don't know that to be scientific fact. I just had heard that a long time ago and it always stuck with me. And then when I heard about visualization and framing, those two things sort of lined up for me around focusing on the positive thing versus the thing you don't want to be or the thing you don't want to do. Yes. Oh, I love it. I think the other thing, as I'm thinking about it, talking to you, the other thing that that does is if you're focused on not being the negative thing, there's generally a negative emotion around the negative thing. And so instead of being filled with dread that that's not what you want to be, be filled with whatever the positive emotion is. And I'm I'm sure it might be mixed emotions if it's a challenging thing you're trying to become, but it just seems a much more productive, you'd be filled with a much more productive emotion if you're framing it around the thing you want to become. Well, and then the steps become much clearer, don't they? So if I want to become a better speaker, what are the things that I have to do to be a better speaker? I have to get clear on what I want to say. I have to eliminate things that are distracting. I, I have to talk. Yeah. It helps you kind of more automatically set those things, those next steps for yourself. Yeah. What are the exercises or, or are there any exercises that you give clients to catch the words that they're using? Mm. So that goes back to first listen to yourself. So one of the prerequisites that I have of working with a client is you must be willing to record and listen to yourself because, which is painful and people don't like that. Say, and, oh, hard. My voice and all that. We can get into what that, why you hate the sound of your own voice. And we can talk about that in a minute. But so that's, that's an exercise that I have people do. Usually, folks, as soon as I draw it to their attention a couple of times, you just said that. Is that what you really mean? You're using catastrophic language. If you want people to have faith and trust in you and you want credibility, we need to eliminate catastrophic language. That usually hits people. When I, when I hit them with the trust and credibility piece, and tell them that they are planting the idea in someone's head that they are a disaster, that they're a mess, that they're disorganized. We don't want that. So if I tell folks to do that, self-awareness generally kicks in. And then from there, the exercise that I have people do is stop immediately when you catch yourself saying, I'm a mess. So if I, if I popped on here and I had said to you, oh, dang it, O'Brien, I'm a mess, I would have, on a good day, paused and said, I don't mean I'm a mess. I mean, my dog just threw up on the carpet and I have to close the door and there's dog puke on the carpet. And I just got balled out by a client. And now I feel disorganized and not ready for this interview. Those are facts. Those are real. Disaster is ambiguous. It makes it sound like I'm going to die shortly, which is not true that I know of. So I had a question pop into my head and I think that that kind of answers it actually, which the question was going to be, how do you avoid the negative language and still be vulnerable? Because there's a lot of talk right now about the power of vulnerability. And so I think one could hear you say, well, don't 
don't communicate the catastrophic language, I think people could hear that and say, oh, well, I can't be vulnerable. If something is going bad in my life, I have to lock it away and I can't communicate that to people. Being vulnerable is telling the truth. And being specific about it. And being specific about it. Now, there's a limit to that. So Brene Brown says this, and I love it. She's, you don't put your bikini wax on Instagram. Yeah, that's not vulnerable. That's oversharing. That's oversharing. But vulnerability says, I'm going to come into this conversation and let you know that I'm not in a good place. And maybe that's enough. Maybe it's instead of, hey, O'Brien, here are the eight things that went wrong. I'm not in a good place right now. And I'm not feeling at my best. And that's enough to indicate, all right, we need to pivot. We need, oh, there's a word, pivot. Jargony, ridiculousness. We need, <laughs> we need to take a moment and figure out what we're going to do. I use pivot all the time. I'm not going to judge you for pivot. Right? Is there a better word than pivot, though? Change course. Change course. Try something different. Go in a different direction. Yeah. That's a lot of words, though. Pivot's just one. <laughs> yeah, pivot's just <laughs> If you're going for conciseness, pivot We're, works. We are going to bore the heck out of people listening to this, going down these rabbit holes. Because I, I find yes. it interesting, but people are going to be like, Jesus, just pick a word. It's just a word. Let's go. Yeah, you can edit that out. <laughs> no, we'll probably leave that in. We want this to be, we want this to be authentic, right? Oh, yeah, there we go. How do you help people find their voice? That's something you hear a lot. I mean, maybe that in and of itself is kind of a buzz term, but you know, be off, you hear people talking about being authentic, speaking authentically, finding your voice. What does that mean to you? That means if I, when I think about someone finding their voice, what would you say? How would you say it if you didn't feel all of the pressure to socially edit based on the person that was listening to you? So let me give you some examples. When, when you show up in front of, you're going to do a presentation, there's a certain checklist that people go through in their mind of this is how I should look, sound, and act when I give a presentation. So how do I get it right? So then I try to fill in that box of what's right. But the truth of the matter is, is that there is no agreed upon right way to communicate. There are multiple ways and there's your way. So looking at whether or not, you know, like, I, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to present like so-and-so I want to be Steve jobs. Well, then when you go try to be Steve jobs, you don't show up as O'Brien. So that's not the way you would say it. And you don't show up as Steve jobs either. You show up as some awkward version. Awful. Of something. Yeah. It's awkward and it's hard and people can see right through it. So there's this piece of finding your own voice that means listening to yourself when you're talking, when you don't feel restrained by whatever context normally has you showing up weird, funny. And for most of my people, that's when they're in a meeting, when they're given a presentation, when they're doing a one-on-one -on -one with their boss. I work with executives who immediately shift how they would communicate at a group of executive leaders versus how they would communicate in, at a group of mid-level managers. I'm like, well, why are you communicating differently to different groups? If you were clear and concise with the mid-level managers, why are you shifting? Well, because I'm worried about what they think about me and I want to sound the right way. And what's the negative to that? Like, what do you see as the repercussions to not communicating with your authentic voice? Lack of confidence, talking around things instead of being direct or being too direct when you're actually a need to be indirect or more mindful of how you're approaching a situation. For example, if you came to me and you said, Oh, Alex, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I just lost my dog and I'm feeling really down. And I'm like, well, too bad. Let's go on with the day. <laughs> like, that's not, that's not who you are as a person, right? You as a person would take time and say, oh, 
man, that's really tough. How are you feeling? Like, do you need anything? Is there anything I can do? Like as a human, you would do that. But in the context of work where it's busy, 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 go, go, go. Let's, you know, well, I'm sorry, your dog's dead. Let's go. Yeah. So I used to work with a guy and we were having this kind of a conversation around communication and, and how he communicated. And he was frustrated because we were talking about communicating authentically and he had a style, a more what he called his authentic style was a little rougher around the edges. And so he was swearing a lot. He made some vulgar jokes when he felt comfortable. And he was saying, you know, that's my, that's who I am. That's my style. And I was arguing, you know, maybe we need to then look at you and do the work on you and then figure out what that style looks like. But like, what would you say to somebody in that position who says, well, my authentic voice has me swearing like a sailor and making off-color jokes. That's my authentic voice. Okay, that's your authentic voice. My question then becomes, who are you there to serve? So if I am going and speaking to a mom's group at a church, my authentic voice might be to use cuss words, but I'm not going to do that because I respect the other people enough not to. I can still say what I need to say in a fun and light engaging way without that. So I think it's, it's not an either or it's a yes. And so, yes, I know my authentic voice typically sounds like this and I, sh I show up with respect for the people in front of me. So if this is going to go poorly, because of that, I'm not going to show up that way. So does that make it inauthentic then? How do you change your communication for the audience, but keep it authentic? I would say it's a matter of thinking about, is there another way to phrase this? You know, can I, can I soften it? I guess in, if we're talking about this guy that cusses a lot, like does his, does his message change in and of itself? Does the authentic message change? if he takes out the cuss word or is the cuss word just there as a thing? Yeah. And I'm thinking about him specifically. And I think sometimes there is insecurity in some of that communication that isn't really your authentic self. It's your defensive self. And so you mm. go into that part and I could, I, without getting into too much detail, I, I know that there were some underlying issues in that case too. And so I, you know, I, I wondered how much of that was then manifesting in the way that he then communicated. And if he took care of that, if the communication wouldn't change. And so I, I was always curious about how that manifests. Well, I think when you are able to self-reflect on how you show up in the world is that the person that he wants to show up as right so i can't determine what your authenticity is nor you can determine mine our authenticity will always be perceived by someone else and they're either going to vote yes or they're going to vote no and i can't control that but i've got to know within myself that i showed up as the very best version the most authentic version of myself do you find that your work in helping people communicate more authentically leads back to deeper self-work about who people are and what they really want and how they think about themselves and the story they tell themselves and all that kind of a thing? Oh, for sure. For sure. Every single time. I, I say, this is what I tell people. You already have everything that you need to be a great communicator. There's, there's absolutely nothing that I can give you. You already have it all. My only job is to help you unpack, undo, unlearn things that you are doing or not doing that are impacting how you show up in the world. So I say, because people, oh, you know, I want to be able to ask better questions. When were you ever bad at asking questions? Like, you were a toddler once. Like, you had questions down to a science. I know you did. It's the parameters that we put on people that the minute they start public education about, you've got to show up this way. 
you got to do it this way, that there is a right way. We're still debating on whether or not there's a right way to communicate when that there, there is no one right way. There are multiple ways. So if there's no right way, that makes me think, you know, there's, there's definitely wrong ways. And so if there's no right way, no right word to say in any one moment, I, I have to still believe that there are some basic principles that apply to making sure that you're communicating the right way. What are, what are those? Well, one, would you agree with that? And two, if so, what are those principles that people should keep in mind when they're communicating? So I, I will drive back. I'll push back and say not right or wrong, just different and different might have a different level of effectiveness. So effectiveness in communication, I've got to trial and error that with you. So what's going to be effective with you is not going to be effective with my husband is not going to be effective with my best friend, Rebecca. So it's not, it's not right or wrong. It's a effective or ineffective. Yes. Right. So it would be ineffective of me to come at you and be like dropping F bombs and be like, this show sucks. Or, like, that's not effective. That's not a clear way to communicate. And so I, I, I don't like the binary here of right or wrong. General, general principles of good communication are listen first, seek first to understand, which is really tough, really tough to do in today's world, really tough when we're busy, really tough when we're constantly distracted. Ask questions. Don't make assumptions that you know. So I see that as a general principle. You don't do that. And be kind. I think it's the stuff that we learned in kindergarten. That when basic good human behavior. How do you define kind? Mm. <laughs> Feedback is kind. Is that where we're going I, with this? I... <laughs> I didn't elaborate on that question for a reason because I wanted to see where you would go with that. How do I define kind? To me, without context. So if I'm talking about what is kind, allowing the person the freedom to make their own decision. Kind is not handing over answers, but allowing, but giving people the assistance they need to find the answers themselves. Kind is pointing out what works and what might work better. Cy Wakeman, do you ever listen to Cy Wakeman? Yep. Yeah. So she says that phrase, you're perfect, Cy, but you, like, you still need some work. <laughs> right? <That's great. laughs> it's the yes and. That's kind. Thank you. I, I work with a leadership coach I've talked about a few times on this podcast, and he says we often are trying to be kind, but what we're really being is nice, and nice is not kind. Mm -hmm. Night, you can lie to somebody and still be nice. You, you're not nice. You're not kind to somebody if you're lying to them. And so he talks about telling truth. Now, not if that truth is hard to hear, you don't want to just cut right to it. That's not kind either. You want to give them the appropriate type of feedback, but you're not being kind to them if you're not giving them that feedback. That reminds me of Brene Brown and clear is kind. Clear is kind. We live in the Midwest. You know how difficult it is to get someone to tell you no <laughs> in the Midwest. <laughs> it's harder in the South. <laughs> people will avoid you. They will not respond to your emails. And you're like, that's not kind. Just tell me, no, I can go on with a no. I know how to process a no, but oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, I'm in sales. And so, you know, we'll go through a process with somebody and it'll be a month and a half after our final meeting that they finally reach back out and say, uh, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to go in a different direction, blah, blah, blah. You know, they'll just like talk around it for a long period of time. I'm like, look, I knew this three weeks ago when you hadn't returned a phone call of mine. Like, it's okay. We're all professionals here. This happens, you know, you win some, you lose some, let's move on. But, you know, you can call me and tell me. Mm -hmm. I have one more question about swearing. Go. 
because I had, I've heard Tony Robbins talk about the way that he talks and he swears a decent amount. A lot. You know, if you've watched any clips of his, he claims that he uses it on purpose and that he's using it to fire your brain in a certain way so that you start paying attention. What are your thoughts on using swear words, you know, four letter expletives proactively? I would say Tony Robbins can get away with that because he's Tony Robbins. If you're Tony Robbins or you carry that kind of weight within the the sphere that you float in, then good for you. I, I view it as a context-based thing. So again, who's your audience? What are you trying to achieve? What's their reaction going to be? And is that what you want? Do you think, and I guess not just in, not just with swearing, but do you think really strong language is good when you want to make a real point, like to get people to turn back on and pay attention, like using some of those cues to snap people out of whatever funk they're in or something like that? Like, do you think there is a point to going all the way and, and seeming a little bit harsh every once in a while, again, with the right audience? But do you, do you think that 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 effect is real? Oh, it gets your attention. Yes, for sure. If you're, so what Tony Robbins says, if we unpack what he says, he says, I'm doing this to get people's attention, then yes, it works. Now, whether that attention is positive or negative, whether that drives the future results that you want, that's debatable, but it gets people's attention and it resonates with the folks that he's trying to get a hold of. So it's a strategy. What I think is really more interesting about how language has shaped and changed over time, especially around swearing, is that it's so prevalent. It's so prevalent and it, we will eventually become numb to it. So we will have to come up with other words. I mean, how many times have you seen the F word today? Today, how many times have you seen it? Where before, if we went back maybe even 10 years, that just wouldn't have flown. That would have not, I mean, my goodness, we're relatively close in age. We remember when CDs came out with explicit on it and your parents were like, oh my goodness. Sure. And now the stuff, the stuff that gets played around small children in gyms is unbelievable. Yeah. We're so desensitized to it. So I think, I think long-term Tony's going to have to find a new strategy. And for the, the everyday person like us, I say, what are you using it for? And does it, does it add value to the conversation? It does, is it necessary? So, yeah, I, I, so I guess a very long way to answer your question. Is there, is there ever a point where it's valuable to use something like really harsh language to get folks' attention? Maybe. I like how non-committal you are and how situational the answers to this are, which I, I makes total sense to me, but it's very, it's very different from the, here are the 10 things you need to do to be a better communicator. I'm not, yeah. I'm not your girl. I'm not your girl for that. I won't. I will. You're right? not doing I mean, we can SEO talk about prioritized searches. When has that worked for you? When? So this is this is my beef with that. And I recognize that I work in the public speaking world where that is a sales strategy. Like I got to come out with you with the five things. I I have that. I have the five things that you should avoid. The five most common fears of public speaking. I I can hand you that all day. But is that really going to help you? Is if you follow those five things, am I really going to take away your fear of public speaking? If your fear of public speaking really stems from, I am terrified and I don't feel like I have the worth to stand on that stage and deliver the message I'm supposed to deliver. The five things that I'm going to tell you are not going to fix that. So what does the work look like to make real change then? So the work like looks like starting with, all right, always, what's the end? What do you want to be as a communicator? What does success look like for you, O'Brien? Because you're not going to communicate like me and I'm not going to communicate like you and I'm not going to try to coach you into being an Alex. That wouldn't work. So what does the end look like? From there, we're going to look at what's the attitude, the behavior, the technique that we need to use. So success triangle, you know this, you've heard of that. So what, what's my attitude about this? What are my behaviors? What techniques do I need to use? And what things do I need to stop doing and start doing in order to be the type of communicator that I want to be? 
I mean, it's similar to setting any other behavior change or, or skill change goal. It's just being purposeful around communication and then doing the, the inner work to understand why you feel the way you feel about communication. That's hard to do. It takes a lot of time. I think that's, that's where everybody gets stuck with these things. Right. And that's why the, the five bullets, you know, the five things you need to do to be a better communicator, you know, it's easy to consume that, but the easier something is to consume the more fleeting it is when you go to put it into practice. And I, I think one of the troubles that we're in right now is everything is moving so quickly that it's hard to slow down and really do the work. And the other thing is there are so many things we all are told we need to get better at, right? We need to be better communicators. We need to be better leaders. We need to be better salespeople, better marketers. We need to be better spouses. We need, you know, there's just like an endless list of skills that we could be adding. And like, you know, where do you fit it all in when we're all plugged in and connected all the time? And the boss is calling and the kids are calling and there's just, you just can't slow down or you feel like you can't slow down, which I guess brings up that, that ramble brings up a good question of how do you coach your clients to slow down? How do you coach them to make that space? Well, it starts by the physical making of the space. So you follow a calendar you have meetings on those calendars. You block your time. If it's important to you, you will find the time to do it. So we start there. Uh, for example, I'm coaching a group, starting a communicate with confidence group. And the very first step is, all right, so for the next six weeks, guess what? From, on Wednesdays from 1130 to 1.30, which is still a woefully short amount of time to try to undo and redo all the communication things that need to be done. But that's our time. Like we're talking about it. We're thinking about it. You have homework, you have stuff to bring, just like you would do any other activity. If you were going to the gym, like you set that time and you work on that, you address it there. And then you develop the awareness in your everyday life, functional practice of, oh, guess what? Every time I open my mouth, that's an opportunity for me to practice good communication. We don't think about it that way, but it's true. So you said earlier, one of the first things that you can do is start recording yourself. What should they be recording? Phone calls, conversations. Right now we're in a, with permission. So every state and every conversation, this has to be done with permission, but we're in a great period of time right now to be able to record stuff. Cause all you have to do is hit the button on zoom. So anytime you have an opportunity and especially when you're in a situation where maybe you don't feel as confident, you should be recording yourself so you can go back and listen to the things that you're doing or not doing that are impacting how well you're understood. Why is that so hard to do? to listen to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it's just the thought of having to go back and watch yourself or listen to yourself. It just is excruciating for almost everybody. Why, why is that so hard? First thing, we're our own worst critics. So when we already have made an assessment of our performance, which we will either confirm or deny. So unless you're a narcissist, right? you're just like, I'm amazing. Maybe you're going to watch your video and be like, look how amazing I was. But for the rest of society, we have already gone through and made the list of all the stuff that we've done wrong. And we don't really want to confirm that again or find more, which we will because we will see ourselves in an unfiltered way. Physically, it's hard to listen to ourselves because we don't sound the same to ourselves as we sound to other people. And that's because of how our you know, ear canal is structured. So we hear everything through bone conduction in our heads. So then when we hear our voice through audio wave, it doesn't sound the same. And then we're super freaked out because then we go, oh my gosh, is that what everyone hears when I talk? Yes, that's what everyone hears. And they're acclimated to it. They recognize it as your voice. You just don't because you've been listening to it through your bones the whole time. Do you find that when people listen to their own voice, 
that just the process of listening to their own voice improves their communication and their speech patterns? Yes, because you're picking up on all the things that you don't like. You pick up on your tone, you pick up on your filler. So that'll be the first thing that usually comes out. People will say, he used so many us. Or I use this phrase over and over again. I listened to a podcast that I did not that long ago and recognized that I, for whatever reason that day, tied everything with a so. I'm guilty of that. All of my transition statements in this podcast were so. And I thought, oh man, what does that say? Where was I uncomfortable? Or where was I not paying attention? Or... Where was I not leaving space? You're really good at pausing, which then helps me pause, which helps eliminate fillers because fillers we use to fill up dead space. Can you go a little deeper into that? Talk a little bit more about space and how we can use space in communication. Oh, goodness. We're afraid. We are scared of silence. So we fill it and fill it, and especially in sales. Can I pick on salespeople for sure, a minute? Sure, we're terrible. <laughs> you guys use pressive speech. You know what pressive speech is? No. So it's a term we use when, oftentimes when folks have suffered a, a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, and they start talking like this, and they start going really fast, and they just go, 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 and it's pressive speech, and I don't stop, and I just keep going, and I get them, O'Brien, I like your shirt. That's a really nice shirt. I like, I've been to Under Armour. Have you been to Under Armour at Disney? It's a really big store, and they've got a big shirt, and they just go, and there's almost no breath. And I know that this is taught as a sales technique. I don't, maybe not now. I I have heard that it has been taught as if a If anybody is technique. teaching you that as a sales technique, run the other way because it is not a good sales right. technique. It's not. It's intimidating. And yet people will use it to not allow a, another person the space to think. And then the next thing you know, the other person's like, fine, I'll agree to this thing. And next thing you know, you're sitting in a weird Ruth Chris yeah. here in a pitch for a cruise or something. Yeah, it is. It, uh, let me clarify that. It is a good sales technique if your goal is to get a few people to buy the thing right there, right then. It is a terrible sales technique in general because those people will hate you once they walk out and have time to settle down. If they can return it, they likely will. And if they are strong-willed, they are never going to buy anything from you ever again. So it is a very short-term, finite game type approach to how to sell something to somebody. So back to leaving space. So sometimes we don't leave space because we're afraid. I'm going to put it in the context of sales. Again, we're afraid of leaving space of letting the other person have time to think. We're afraid of the question that they might ask. We're afraid of or, or getting it coming wrong. across like you don't know what you're talking about because you have to think about it. I think that's a big one in sales. Like having been in sales my whole career is you're just afraid that the person is going to think you are dumb or aren't qualified or something because you can't make the point or make the connection right away. You know, there's that pressure to like be on all the time. And the reality is when you slow down, you say smarter things. Yes. RBG. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is known to pause up to something like two minutes before she speaks. Can you imagine? We're uncomfortable with more than, I think the average physician interrupts within 10 seconds of somebody talking, and, uh, but we're uncomfortable with just these two or three seconds. Two minutes? <sighs> yeah. I did a personality assessment beginning of my tenure at Lockton. So about 11 years ago. And the gentleman who was administering it was laughing as he was going over my results. And he said, the thing you scored highest on was being able to make connections, which is great for the line of work that you're in. The thing that you are worst at is taking the time to make connections. Oh, and he basically said, you're, you're trying to move so fast that you are actually missing out on what is one of your biggest strengths. 
and that, I mean, that was a big light bulb moment for me to be able to sit down. And we talk through some of the techniques that you can use to make yourself more comfortable in that moment to say, okay, let me think about that. And just say, let me think about that. Or to even start to think out loud to say, okay, so you said this, but you also said that. And in my mind, that makes me think, and you're kind of talking through it out loud rather than doing it in your head. You're filling the space. It's not total blank space, but you're allowing yourself to the time to think, which is really the important part. Whoa. I'm just thinking about what that must've been like for you. People are afraid to ask for that time to think because we're taught so much value the other person's time, get to your point, go, 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 that we don't give ourselves the space or place or, or permission, if you will, to, to say out loud, Ooh, I need to think about that for a second. Yeah, especially if you're have any kind of, you know, drive in your personality, it can just be really easy to not take that time. I'm glad you said that. That was a, that was a good rabbit hole to go down. Looking at time here, I want to be respectful of your time and know, know it's almost over. I have a few questions that I ask everybody at the end and, and just curious. So you help people in business all the time. You have your own small business. What in your mind is the purpose of business? The purpose of business? Mm. I mean, I could give you the... Come on. We, we had a whole talk about authentic communication. I want, the, I want whatever <laughs> your authentic answer is. Helping other people. Simple as that. That's a good one. Helping other people with your product, with your service. That's the ideal, the altruistic version of what business should be. I love it. That's a great great answer. What in your line of work are you sick of talking about? And what are you the most excited to be talking about? Mm, I'm sick of talking about how bad 2020 is. Does that fall into the catastrophizing bucket? Yeah, it's, I look at it and say, we are all still here. And there are people who, I, I, I wrote about this for my newsletter this week. And it, it was a comment I saw on CNN and it said, you know, we're sorry to inform you that 2020 isn't over yet. And I thought, what a dumb thing to say. Because for so many people, 2020 ended way too soon. So I get it. Life is really hard for people right now. I'm not minimizing the struggles that people are facing. I'm in no way, shape, or form doing that. And I am a firm believer that while you have breath in your lungs, you still have this incredible gift called life. And that means that there's an opportunity to do something with it. So 2020 has not turned out how any of us anticipated but what can we do to make it better? What can we do right now? Because I can guarantee you there's something. I, I just worked with people for too long who had so much taken away. And every day we would go in and we would say, what can you do? So if all you could do was pucker your lip, that was a good day. And so the skewed version of how people are viewing reality right now gets me, you're going to get me going. <laughs> like, it gets me going. <laughs> like, stop complaining about 2020. Stop it. What can we make 2020 better? Do you read any kind of stoic philosophy? No. I think it, it, I, I've read, <laughs> He's like, I, th- I think, well, I don't know if you need to, because I think you pretty much just espoused it, but I've read some of Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, and and I like the concept of Stoic philosophy, which is not to stand there like a stone statue and and just deal with whatever the world throws at you. That that's not really what it is. It's to be able to realize that you only have control over your thoughts and your actions, and that you don't have control over anything else. And so, if something is out of your control let it go. And if something is natural, don't complain about. So like the most extreme example of that, which is very hard to do is, is death, right? Death is a natural thing. And so to reframe the way you think about death, not as 
this unprecedented thing that happens, but this natural thing that's going to happen to all of us, it can actually kind of reframe your own relationship with mortality. And then, you know, a lot of other ways that you, that you think and feel and act. And so I think about that a lot through that framework. I think it, it sounds like you come at it through the language framework of let's, let's be real about what you're saying. And is that really true? And the the answer a lot of the times is no, it's not. Let's be more clear and let's be more real about this. Let's be more honest about this. But I think the, the stoic philosophy gets at it from a little bit of a different angle, but same message. Yeah. The phrase I use is what would you say today if you knew tomorrow you would never speak again? And we give fluff answers to that a lot of times. And, it, you know, you kind of, you, but spend some time thinking about that. Would you run around talking about what an effing disaster 2020 is? Or would you make every word count? I think that is a perfect, beautiful, and poetic place to end this. So I will wow. encourage everybody to go out and make every word count. Alex, really appreciate your time and uh, expertise here. It's, it's a fascinating topic just to think about how we are actually communicating and and really how much we're miscommunicating. Everybody, go make every word count. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it. <laughs>